It's early March 1996, and Chechen separatists are launching an offensive on Grozny in a bid to retake the capital from the control of the Russian Federation. They're led by Aslan Maskadov. With a presidential election coming up in Russia, some believe it's a move by Maskadov to force the nation to restart negotiations. On the face of it, the Russian authorities look like they're willing to negotiate. Their president, Boris Yeltsin, has promised a peace plan by the end of the month. But those inside Chechnya know this is just lip service. MSF staff witnessed Russia's indiscriminate bombings firsthand before they were forced out of southern Chechnya in 1995. There were so many wounded. One of the worst nights we had. Children blown apart. Some hideous wounds. I don't remember how many days we spent in the operating theatre. Non-stop. We were amputating every day. Russian armed forces continue to bomb Chechen rebel-held areas in what they call cleansing operations. First, the village of Samashki comes under another brutal attack. Only a year before, Russian forces massacred 200 villagers with flamethrowers here. Soon, nearby Cernovodsk is bombed for three weeks solid, and next, Vergeno is attacked, where MSF has a hospital. By now, MSF just has international staff supporting health facilities in Grozny and over the border in Dagestan and Ingushetia. They and the ICRC are the only international NGOs operating in the region. MSF staff can hear these towns just over the border in Chechnya being bombed for hours and they repeatedly try to get in to treat the wounded, but time and again, Russian forces deny them access. MSF is desperate to speak out, but it's an incredibly delicate situation. What's the best way to bring the world's attention to the plight of the Chechen population? MSF national staff are still working on the ground in southern Chechnya, so will speaking out put their lives in even more danger? Many ask if it's even realistic to use public opinion to raise awareness in other UN member states. And as the risk of kidnapping increases, how safe are MSF staff in the North Caucasus? Today, we say enough. Even war has ruled. Stop the bombing of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. There should not be a scientific uh, research for that. We know that those people are dying. This is Speaking Out, War Crimes and the Politics of Terror in Chechnya, 1994 to 2004, a podcast by MSF. I'm Nick Owen. Episode 2, A Far Cry from Peace. By April 1996, the southern Chechen towns of Samashki, Cernovodsk and Vigeno are completely devastated. Teams of international MSF staff in the North Caucasus are still being blocked from entering them, leaving many feeling helpless. Programme managers and field teams decide it's time to go public with what they're witnessing, but, as always, speaking out when national MSF staff are still working in such a dangerous environment is not straightforward. They have a difficult and often emotional conversation about how to present the topic to the media. Samantha Bolton is communications officer at MSF International. 
We held a meeting in Pyatigorsk in Russia that lasted the whole day. Nearly the entire team was there and it was a really difficult meeting. And I had to work really hard to reach an agreement because the teams were afraid. They wanted a talk, but without holding a major press conference. So we went through each word with a fine tooth comb. I was also ill at ease because I was used to working in Africa, but this was very different to an African regime, which has virtually no control over anything. Here we're dealing with an extremely powerful regime that's afraid of nothing. And it also brought back all our childhood fears. For our parents, it was the Germans. For us, it was the Russians. We were also so used to hearing about secret agents, telephone tapping, and so on. It was full-blown paranoia. I was therefore highly aware of the insecurity and the fears of the teams. We were really careful and negotiated every word. We discussed what they were happy about and what they were not. The MSF France coordinator clearly wanted to speak out, and so did the MSF Belgium one. But she also had to support her teams, and that put her in a somewhat difficult position. But in the end, the teams were sickened by what they were seeing and were in full agreement as to the gravity of the situation. There were rumors that women and children were tied to the tanks as they entered the villages to prevent people shooting at them. And all this information was collected by volunteers who had given all their emotional energy to the collection of these eyewitness accounts and medical data. It was extremely important for them. So in the end, as is often the case with MSF, the disagreements and discussions were more about the form than the content. The real question is always, what do we do with this information? In the end, the French and Belgian sections decide to hold a small breakfast meeting to brief the international press. It's feared that a larger press conference might inflame tensions with Russia and potentially endanger staff on the ground, while Russian media aren't invited to minimise local security problems with the upcoming presidential election. In the field, members of the team who want to are able to leave the mission. On the eve of the event, an ambassador tells MSF that he's received a letter from the Russian Interior Ministry saying that the Russian government would no longer be responsible for the safety of international staff in the North Caucasus because of what they termed uncontrolled rebel elements. It's a clear threat. Samantha Bolton again. The representative of the embassy in question told us, you must absolutely cancel this press conference. So we called a crisis cell meeting with MSF Belgium director Eric Gomar and the teams to decide what to do. And they asked me, what do you think? And so I said, well, we have to go on and to show that we received a threat, but albeit indirectly. I've got good contacts with the journalist to whom I can entrust this. I suggest that we invite her a little bit early because we don't want to talk about this over the phone. And then we give her the letter so that she can say she received it from an embassy. At the press conference, she will show the letter and ask the question, are you aware of the letter sent by the interior ministry to one of the embassies? This is what it says. She will read the letter in front of the press conference so that it is made public and we will answer her question. Do you consider this a threat on the part of the Russian government? The plan works and the letter is seen for what it is, a threat. MSF circulates it among journalists together with a report called Chechnya, Far From Peace, that contains eyewitness accounts of the massacres. There's good press coverage. MSF Belgium Director General Eric Gomer speaks at the event. We decided uh, to go to Moscow and denounce a large human rights violation that being carried out because villages were bombed, 
one after the other. And uh, part of the strategy was to let the villagers believe that actually they had the choice either to leave or to join the uprising. And as a matter of fact, they had absolutely no chance and they were bombed in, in large numbers. So there, were, there was a massacre, definitely, of uh, civilians. So uh, we said it bluntly in that uh, press conference in, uh, in uh, Moscow that uh, for a humanitarian, this was uh, definitely a massacre and uh, uh, there was uh, absolutely no excuse. There were lots of journalists present. Uh, President uh, Yeltsin was then in power. And uh, what happened in Chechnya, you know, far away from any witness was not very well known. So it attracted a lot of interest from uh, different European and American uh, TV stations. So needless to say, this was not very popular with the administration in Moscow, but to the contrary, uh, very popular with, of course, the G7. And we sent a letter to the various president of the G7 to denounce what was happening in Chechnya. And we even got a letter from President Clinton in that time to acknowledge that we were absolutely right and uh, that uh, he felt uh, absolutely concerned and would raise this issue with President Yeltsin. But at the breakfast, there are far more journalists than they'd anticipated. And it turns into a full-scale press conference which worries some at MSF, particularly those left in the field. Another concern is that MSF's criticism of Russia went much further than the teams had planned, while the decision not to invite Russian media also has mixed results, according to some. Samantha Bolton. The international staff was very close to the local teams who asked them to speak out, and they felt it was their duty to do so. But they were afraid that their statements might be manipulated in the context of the elections. So we decided not to alert the Russian media, and we stuck to that. From that point of view, we were very successful. There was little or nothing in the Russian press. But I don't know if this was the right strategy. When the international staff went back to Chechnya, the local team said that no one had heard about what we were doing, because in general, no one there listens to the BBC or RFI News. So there was virtually no Russian coverage in the Russian press. So all this effort seemed to be for nothing when we consider that one of the main reasons for this communication was to satisfy the Chechen personnel who so wanted us to talk out about the fate of Chechens. I also believe that this further increased the fears of the international staff on site. Having heard no official reaction, nothing on the radio, nothing in the press, their imaginations began to run riot. And they were all wondering what was really happening behind the scenes. In the end, when you make a public declaration, it's best to make it completely public and pull out the teams if need be. I believe that what we did was something of a compromise. It's not long before MSF are re-examining this press conference again. Throughout 1995, humanitarian workers have been increasingly exposed to harassment and assault. In two separate incidents, MSF Belgium has their vehicles fired on by a Russian tank and a helicopter. MSF's bases are constantly being attacked and staff are caught up in ambushes and are the victims of armed robbery. Teams start pulling out of certain areas. Then, in January 1996, 
a member of staff from MSF Belgium, is held hostage in southern Chechnya. He's released after a few hours, but it turns out this is a sign of things to come. In April, three more people from the MSF Belgium team are kidnapped just outside Grozny. The coordinator is released a few hours later with a ransom demand. The other two, an administrator and an interpreter, are held hostage for two weeks before being released. Within the Belgian section, and MSF more widely, questions begin to emerge over a possible link between this kidnapping and the public accusations aired by MSF at the press conference in Moscow the month before. MSF Belgium Director General Dr. Eric Gomer speaks at the event. Three people from MSF Belgium were kidnapped uh, actually two weeks after the press conference. Uh, although the team, they had agreed for us to speak out about what was happening in their region, but uh, said initially it's because of what Eric uh, said in Moscow in the press conference that this happened. And so I was personally supposed in that time to attend a general assembly in Brussels that was due to happen beginning of May. And uh, I thought that the best thing I had to do was actually to go back to Moscow and to Chechnya actually to uh, try to sort out the situation. So when I left, actually, I felt really guilty. And I said to myself, you are an idiot or you are naive. Or didn't you think they might be doing this as a reprisal? It seems obvious that one event was linked to the other. But it's actually once I reached Chechnya and I had to dialogue with the kidnapper, uh, I realized that it was a, a very large uh, network of uh, criminals uh, there in Chechnya, and actually kidnapping was a sort of common practice there to try to gather money. So I must say that uh, I had to change my mind and, uh, about the link between the press conference and the kidnapping, because uh, I thought it wouldn't make sense for the Russian authority to actually allow for an issue to this kidnapping, which was quite quick, actually, but they could have kept the hostages longer if they wanted us to withdraw, which we didn't do. However, the conflict itself is calming down. The Chechen separatists declare victory over the Russian army in August 1996 and a ceasefire agreement and then a peace treaty is signed. The Russians temporarily withdraw from the country. But the threats, armed holdups, robberies and other kidnapping attempts continue throughout 1996, with or without the war. In December, six staff from the International Committee of the Red Cross are assassinated in their sleep. MSF's programmes close one by one for security reasons, and by the end of the year, there are no MSF international staff left in Chechnya. MSF Belgium programme manager Dr Alain Deveau remembers the atmosphere at MSF after their ICRC colleagues are killed. At that point, we decided to keep a low profile. So I went to Chechnya for a final visit and to bring back the teams to Dagestan. I was surrounded by Masadov's men, who were armed to the teeth with two cars on either side, so I wouldn't be kidnapped. 
We took everyone back to Dagestan and we continued to work with the Chechen teams who lived on site and wanted to continue working with their people. We used a system we didn't like very much, remote medical care, but it was our only option. We experienced other threats of this type. There had been several minor abductions that had lasted a few hours, but the level of violence was increasing each time, with threats and mock executions. One time, colleagues were tied up next to a grave. One of them had to go to get a sum of money to liberate his friend. At that point, Chechen separatists attacked the kidnappers to free him, which posed its own risks. On the 5th of January 1997, the last Russian troops officially leave Chechnya and shortly after, Aslan Masadov is elected president of the Independent Republic of Chechnya. But the risk to MSF staff persists. In July 1997, another administrator working for MSF France, Christophe André, is kidnapped in Ingushetia. This time, MSF decides not to speak openly to the press. Graziella Godin is MSF France's emergency coordinator in the North Caucasus. It only came out in the press about a week or ten days after the kidnapping. We gave a few interviews at first, but the journalists didn't particularly hound us. Later, interviews were all initiated by us. As it was, we decided not to give interviews focusing on the details of Christophe's kidnapping. We spoke out to apply pressure, using political windows of opportunity to draw attention to the hostage, to keep him visible. During the official visits of the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Vedrine, and Chirac, the President of the French Republic, we flagged that fact that one of our staff was being held captive and that the hostage-taking issue needed addressing. We constantly had to strike a balance to avoid raising the price tag on the hostage's head to make sure he retains a human value. So we had to present him as a humanitarian worker in the region to save lives. This was our line when we spoke out, but we didn't communicate proactively on the subject. Christophe escapes three months later after his guard forgets to relock his handcuffs. Afterwards, all MSF operational teams withdraw from the North Caucasus altogether. Over the next two years, there's a shift in leadership in Chechnya. In 1998, President Aslan Maksadov makes the wartime separatist leader Shamil Basayev his prime minister. By the end of the year, the president's popularity is waning due to his failure to bring stability to the country suffering from the war, a flourishing mafia and an upsurge in radical Islam. His prime minister's popularity, on the other hand, is on the rise. But Basayev is under the influence of a radical Saudi Islamist commandant, and in January 1999, it's announced that Sharia, or Islamic law, will rule in Chechnya within three years. That August, Basayev sends a group of Chechen rebels on a mission to what he calls liberate Dagestan from Russian forces. These same rebels are named by the Russian authorities as being responsible for a series of bomb attacks that kill hundreds in Moscow. In retaliation, the new Russian Prime Minister, Vladimir Putin, bombs Dagestan. Independent observers later claim that the Russian authorities organised these attacks in order to justify their armed intervention in Dagestan. Then, on the night of 3rd of October 1999, Russian tanks roll into northern Chechnya and a second war begins. 
the Russian authorities no longer recognised the government of the elected Chechen president, Aslan Masadov. Many Chechens have fled to Ingushetia and the surrounding republics. There's a humanitarian disaster building in the region, but the Kremlin denies this, once more blaming the population displacement on the insurgents and labelling them terrorists. The Russian forces in the country are on a so-called anti-terrorist operation, according to their leaders. On the 24th of October, Russia closes the border between Chechnya and Ingushetia, preventing Chechen civilians from escaping the bombings and imposing a total blockade on Chechnya. Next time. With hostilities in Chechnya flaring up again, MSF leaders decide to make use of their platform when receiving the Nobel Peace Prize to call on the international community to intervene in the escalating disaster. People of Chechnya, and particularly the people of Grozny, today and for more than three months have endured indiscriminate bombing by the Russian army. For them, humanitarian assistance is virtually unknown. But MSF's operational sections are struggling to work in a Chechnya facing all-out war and dangerous security problems, including attacks, kidnapping and threats. Instead, MSF starts supporting refugees in the neighbouring republics while inside the country, operations are run through what's called a remote control management structure, whereby staff members from the Caucasus are trained, supported and managed from afar by international teams in the region. This MSF Speaking Out podcast is based on an original MSF case study called War Crimes and Politics of Terror in Chechnya, 1994-2004. It's written by Lawrence Binet and is part of the Speaking Out Case Studies series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is written, produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Interviews are recorded by Lucy Dearlove. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Laurence Binet, and Rebecca Golden Timsar. The narrator is Nick Owen. Extracts are read by Didi Bellos and Matthew Wade. The voiceover is by Andrea Rangecroft. The music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Samantha Bolton, Dr. Alain DeVoe, Dr. Eric Gomer, and Graziella Godin. To read the full case study and discover others, please go to our website, msf.org slash speaking out. Thanks for listening.